A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. I was going to get at this a little bit later, but now's a good time. I was, I've, I've, you know, I've thought about atonement and what he did in the garden primarily is, is the punitive version for years. And then I started to redefine it recently. And I thought about how, you know, when, when I read in the news about some woman whose child was hit by a car, now that I have children, it really moves me differently. It's painful and it brings me to tears, you know, and, and, and when I read that kind of stuff, I feel like out of just reverence for people, I need to kind of take a moment and take that in, just sit with it and feel that pain as a way of kind of experiencing a little mini at one mint with her as, as small and, you know, that doesn't come close because my pain goes away. You know, I get to go to Walmart or whatever and continue with my life. But that woman's pain, it's going to be a hole in her heart for the rest of her life. And... I see kind of what Jesus did. I started to see it more as this thing he did to bring us to become at one with us, you know, where we're down here experiencing so much pain and he does this thing, not so that he can, you know, uh, balance the book, so to speak, but so that he understands how to sucker us. Like Alma says, uh, that he suffered so not, not so they can judge, even though that's part of suckering judges what medicine we need. Um, but so that he could understand us. But you talk about in uh, in okay, I'll read it here again in notes on life, grace, and atonement from Rube Goldberg machines. You say grace is not what ensures a desirable outcome by restricting our experiences to feeling only good and pleasant things. The heavens themselves weep, after all. Rather, grace is feeling. Here, the choice is not between feeling good things or feeling bad things. The choice is more fundamental. It is between feeling and not feeling. We can refuse to fill what we want to avoid only at the cost of feeling itself. And I thought about that, and I thought about Joseph Smith's quote with, you know, where he says, Thy mind, O man, it's a letter from Liberty Jail, Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt save, or if thou wilt bring a soul unto salvation, must ascend to the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss. Thou must commune with God. So this thing of reaching the highest highs and then sinking to the lowest lows and that that huge scope of human experience he sums up as communing with God. And at the beginning of that he says, Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt bring a soul into salvation. I kinda think he's telling us something about God, like because God had to do that in the atonement. Like thy mind, O God, if thou wilt bring a soul to salvation. And I, I start I, I guess my question to you is is that for the whole scope of human experience, there's also a great deal of joy. And Christianity has really kind of um, – our central act is one of suffering. And it's a religion that, that tries to bring people together through suffering. You know what I mean? It's not one that 
is it seems to be focused more on suffering than joy. And I kind of wonder, Jesus would have had to know like what a heroin addict feels like right when they shoot up, if he's going to have to, to, to uh, help one, you know? Like the reason I want to learn that the pain of the woman that lost her child is because I think it will make me, well, definitely makes me want to reach out much more um, when I feel that too. So it's useful because it helps me feel charitable. So what do you think about pleasure in relation to to the atonement of Christ? Because we talk about suffering. Let me, yeah, let me come back. Let me come back for a second to the point that you're just making about suffering. I think I think the key to the whole thing, the key to the key to understanding something really important about what it means to be a human being, is to recognize the way that grace is something that we suffer. Mm-hmm. Right. Grace is this thing that's given freely without our having asked for it or maybe even wanted it. It's just given. Yeah. <laughs> and there it is. You've got it, right? You didn't, maybe you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. But it, it, it comes. It's given. It's, we, we suffer it. And this is why, right? This is why all of us, the, the whole of the human race, this is why we are running pell-mell from God. Right? We are running pell-mell from his grace. And that's what it means to be a human being, to be a, to be a sinner, is, is to be in full flight from God's grace. Because grace is something that we suffer. Right? Grace, to, to receive a grace is to be reminded of how open and vulnerable we are as a precondition for the possibility of life itself. Right? Life itself involves that kind of open vulnerability to, to people in the world around us and to ideas and to emotions and to sensations. We're just laid bare for anything that comes along to, to touch us and uh, fill us. And we're scared to death. Right? And sin is this, this, is this, sin is this most natural gesture of trying to circle the wagons and build a wall to protect ourselves from the possibility of suffering when to the degree that we succeed in building that wall between ourselves and our lives to protect ourselves from our lives, right? That also ends up being the degree to which we cut ourselves off from life itself. So that the 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 only way around the problem here is to do the crazy thing that Jesus does and which is to let the wall fall. Right, to let the yeah. wall fall and to drink the whole cup and to find in that moment that the abundance of life is is so abundant that it can swallow up the whole of both pleasure and pain. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, oh, you know, I was thinking, oh, go on. Were you going to say something? But I'm. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm not in favor of pleasure. <laughs> I'm in favor of because, pleasure because I surely and deeply and profoundly am. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, they give life context. Um, and I think that the pleasure that the Savior felt and the pleasure that I feel give context to the pain. It's all part of the same experience. Uh, 
you know, what you're saying, I think I might be jumping ahead a bit, but it reminded me of, of you know, Adam and Eve in the narrative we tell in the temple. <clears throat> and as it's in, I think it's in Pearl of Great Price, but, uh, you know, they, they, they hide themselves. It was Satan's idea to, for them to, to make uh, aprons out of fig leaves and hide themselves, hide their nakedness. And God, uh, he gives them a new identity as a, as a replacement to this fig leaf cover. You know, take my name upon you. And, it, but one of the first things he asks, kind of, I don't know if he says this, but it's what I get out of it. He says, who told you you were naked? Who told you you had to hide from me? Because they hide. And they're circling the wagons like what you're talking about. And I do that. You know, I hide my perceived nakedness from God and from everyone else around me. And it cuts me off from him because when he's there, they're behind a bush. They're not standing in his presence. You know, that's kind of how we live our lives is behind this bush. And he he wants to, and I think it's, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to include this, but <laughs> in the in the the podcast, because some people might feel really sensitive. But the apron is the only thing we wear in the temple that's not white, you know, uh, and it's the only thing that wasn't God's idea. And I kind of see it as a little reminder to me that that I still have this identity that separates me from Him. And this is kind of where I want to go next into our our stories, the stories we tell. Do you think that would be appropriate to, to – how do you feel about it? Do you think it would be okay to leave that in the podcast? Uh, I'm going to leave that one to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't personally have any objections, but okay. the, the standards for that kind of thing vary. It's on the internet. <laughs> no. I'll, uh, I'll bounce it off of, of uh, the, the people at a thoughtful faith. But um, so let's get into stories a little bit. Um. Do you mean identity when you talk about story? Because you talk about the stories we tell about ourselves to ourselves. You talking about identity? Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't. I don't think that identity is a simple. I don't, I don't think that identity is a simple thing, right? I think. I think identity is a is a complex phenomenon with lots of rough edges made of all different kinds of overlapping and not entirely compatible parts. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So to uh, to begin talking about stories, and you talk about how sin is endemic, like it's native to the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Um, and you, you, you compare our, our behaviors to apples and our story to our basket at the beginning of the letter that you write on stories. You say, do good works. I'm paraphrasing, but you say, do good works, but in the end – you know, sin, like it's better to have good apples than bad apples, good works than bad works. But in the end, sin has as much to do with the apples or our behaviors as it does with the basket that we carry them in or, or the story that we're using to tell them. Um, so maybe you can, to, to characterize or to show how stories separate us from God as a sin or as, as being endemic to sin, maybe you can read that part that, that you know, the story of your coat. You think yeah. that'd be good? Yeah, sure. Okay. Right. So we're talking here about about the way that we use about the way that we use the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Right. The way that that those stories are a gesture of self-defense. Right. That those stories end up we end up repurposing the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves as a way of protecting ourselves from the world and from other people. Right. They're that way. The, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves are a way of building that wall uh, 
to hedge off that vulnerability. And so I tell this little story here in the letter. Uh, think about what it's like to buy a new shirt. You slip, hopeful, into the dressing room. Backed by doubled mirrors, you model it and ask, does this fit my story? Does this match my shadow? As a teenager, I never had much luck with this. In junior high, I grew fast. We didn't have much money, and my clothes never seemed to fit. My sleeves were short, my pants were flooded. I was always yanking at my cuffs, trying to make them longer. Late one fall, my mother took me to buy a new coat. I picked a kind of knockoff ski jacket, bright blue and trimmed with red and green. We even bought it a size too big. When we got home, I put it on and went out for a long, cold walk along our empty country road. For a long time, I walked back and forth, back and forth on a half-mile stretch, imagining with great pleasure what a stranger driving by might say if they saw me, what they might imagine about who I was or where I was going in that new jacket. I was buttoned up safe. The coat seemed like exactly the kind of prop I needed to tell myself a more convincing story, and a more convincing story seemed like exactly what I needed to better protect me. That coat was just one of the many, many stories in which I've tried to hide. You know, um, you talk about how our stories are, you say they're a bit of a Frankenstein and how they're kind of knitted together with, you say, a a second grade test score or a picture from a glossy magazine or something your mother said to you. And we kind of get this ball of associations that surround us that we – that we use to identify ourselves. And man, when I read that coat thing, <laughs> I thought, dude, I still do that. Not exactly, oh, yeah. but you know, I find myself totally, someone hands me an expectation and because I feel insecure, I grab it. I say, okay, I'll be whatever you want me to be as long as it doesn't make me feel insecure. You know, I find myself pulled in that direction by so many things and that's how marketing works. I mean, you got to know that if we all took your book to, to heart, the, the, the marketing world would, fall to its knees capitalism would end as we know it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it all just everything you'd usher in the last days <laughs> the, the apocalypse <laughs> yeah thanks <laughs> um but you know i i heard i i want to talk a little bit about this because our our minds in psychology that i heard someone say um where did i hear this it was on the radio um must be true if you heard it on the yeah. radio. <laughs> yeah, it was. I think it was it was on another Mormon Stories podcast, but oh, then it then it really does. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but uh, they're saying that that there's a, a one of the theories in psychology is that we that our whole identity is really just a collection of stories. If you take those away, we've got nothing, and the human mind is. It's just constantly trying to put things in context of anything. You know, that's what it does when it's not doing it. It's just always making judgments and and you, know, you walk into a room and there's all kinds of processes behind the, the, the – in the background, so to speak, that are running, contextualizing everything in the room in relation to other objects that you can move around them. So even in the physical world of just walking, your brain is doing this and it does it in this kind of narrative form that gives life meaning and – Stories. I was listening to a, a, a Radio Lab episode on um, the placebo effect. It's called placebos, and they talk about this doctor who, in this this war in World War II, the Battle of Anzio, I think it was, 
he'd been a doctor back in Boston and you know, he, he, he tended to gunshot wounds back in Boston and here he is on a battlefield and he's got limited morphine supplies and he's trying to ration his morphine and he would go up to wounded soldiers and say, so how bad is it? They'd say, oh, you know, it's, it's, you know, one out of 10 and they, they, a lot of times, I think it was three out of four would say, you know what? Save the morphine for someone who really needs it. And they got a piece of shrapnel sticking out of their gut or something. And they're saying, I can, I can deal with this. And they're kind of a, a better mood than you would think for someone who's been shot and had a piece of metal ripped through their body. Um, as opposed to people who back in Boston, they would just be in so much more pain. And, you know, why? Well, the theory was, well, maybe that these military people are tougher. Well, no. I was sure they've had training, but can someone train you for a gunshot wound? <laughs> okay, this is what it's going to be like. But um, they, the theory that they settled on finally was that it's the context, it's the story. Because when you're wounded in the battlefield, you kind of did your duty and you get to be taken out of battle and you're alive for one. You know, so you're thrilled and you get to go hang out in a hospital and recover and maybe go home and you're a hero now. And there's – it's a different story than when back home in Boston or wherever you get shot. You know, that was shocking. You didn't expect it. It was a violation where when you're when you're charging the beaches of Normandy, you kind of know. It's not as much of a violation because you're, you're expecting it. And, and back home, you're, you're going to be out of work. It's going to cost a lot of money. The story – is what changes the actual pain that your brain registers to where these guys didn't need morphine on the battlefield very much. So I guess what I'm getting at is that stories, our brains are so geared for them and they and they tend to be useful, but they also can be our worst enemy. And are you talking about shedding stories altogether or having them replaced with a different identity? I think you know we could say we could say the same thing here about story the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. We could say the same things about those stories as we said about work earlier. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't you can't get rid of work. Right? It's not as if there's something other than work. There's no horizon beyond which work will no longer apply. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing I think the same thing is true with stories as you as you just pointed out. Stories are so fundamental, not just to our understanding of ourselves, but to our understanding of the world around us, that to be without them would be to be something other than human, right? Would be to be no longer human. But, I mean, I think, but I think, again, the key has to do, the key, the key to a gospel conversion, right? The key to redeeming these stories, instead of, the key to, instead of having those stories be the thing that damns us, to having those stories be part of what gets saved with us mm-hmm. has to do with a shift in our relationship to them, right? Okay. Uh, just in the way that the redeeming our work, right? Instead of our works damning us, our works are redeemed with us. Those uh, That involves a shift in our relationship to our work such that that work gets recontextualized in light of grace itself. Yeah. So we could say the same kind of thing about our stories. That are the stories that we tell ourselves, we can't get rid of them. But the trouble arrives, right, when we try to make life fit our stories rather than allowing our stories to just be part of life. Right? Stories are kind of the stories that we tell ourselves about 
who we are and about the world around us. That's a kind of inevitable byproduct of life. But mm. what happens is we get so we get so wrapped up in our fantasies about how things ought to be that we end up using our stories as a way of constantly judging and curtailing and uh, cordoning off life itself in a way that strangles the joy right out of life. Yeah, and I think that that's you know that's a good that's a good way of uh, trying to describe what Paul is always talking about when Paul talks about the law, right? Uh, when Paul talks about the law in the New Testament and how the law ends up being a, a servant of sin, he has this kind of thing in mind, right? Paul doesn't just mean the the law of Moses when he's talking about the law. Paul means the, the law here as is something that was originally given by God, but the, then you and I repurpose as a way of judging and strangling life itself. Yeah. Uh, and what has to happen is that the law itself has to be saved by our relating to the law as a grace, rather than our judging life in light of the law. Right? The purpose of the law is to serve life itself. The law is for the sake of life, not life for the sake of the law. But whenever we make life for the sake of the law, that's sin. We're lost. Yeah. We end up dead. Yeah, and, and you talk about um, how God gets repurposed himself and integrated into our story. And you talk about how our stories are, are – they're part of the, the – you say the judgmental chit-chat that's constantly – I'm paraphrasing – but constantly running in the background of our minds. And sometimes it's fair and sometimes it's foul, but that – that's kind of the embodiment of the stories we tell and what they can do to us. And we take God and we just take that chit-chat and put it in his mouth because that's mm -hmm. what I've done. You know, all my own guilts and doubts about myself and who I thought I ought to be, who I think I ought to be, and I'm not, so I'm not good enough, yada, yada. I just replaced myself criticizing to God criticizing. And then I saw the scriptures in that same paradigm because that was the God I had created and he was one that was really just a sounding board for my own uh, thoughts and criticisms, my own story. Is that kind of – because you, you talk – that was one of the questions I was going to ask. How does the idea of God or the played character of God show up in typical Mormon stories? Do you think that's pretty typical? I think that's true. These are the first two commandments, right? The first two commandments. The first two have to do with this kind of natural, almost unavoidable human tendency to make an idol out of God and substitute for God, substitute for a relationship, a real relationship with God, uh, an idol in which we, you know, we've, instead of, instead of finding ourselves playing a part in the story that God is telling by way of our lives, we end up forcing God to play a role in the story we would like to tell ourselves about how we would like things to turn out. And that's idolatry. Whenever we force, whenever we force God to play a role in our story, instead of giving up our stories and abandoning ourselves to the life that He wants to give us, that's that's what idolatry is all about. Yeah, and that's sin. Yeah, and that's sin. So I see that it's it's you want to be done by ten, and it's nine forty-eight now. Um, I didn't realize <laughs> they would go this long. This is good, but no, we're we're all right. I think we could. We can take what time you'd like. Oh, really? You don't mind missing some of conference or anything? I'll catch up on it. Okay. <laughs> I'm kind of excited to hear a woman pray because I, I – Oh, I, yes. That's I, true. I don't, I, I don't want to miss that. Yeah. Um, but I do have a lot, of, lot that we haven't covered yet. Um, 
I've got I've got what does life look like without a story? Uh, actually, you know, that's I was going to wrap that into what about removing the story of uh, surrounding others? Because you know I'm really susceptible to that when someone walks up and they have a um. They look a certain way. I make all kinds of judgments. Or there's certain heights, all these little things that I don't even – sometimes I don't catch myself judging. And I respond to them based on that. And I think that's that's a rejection of something. That's accepting the story they're telling themselves. It may not be true. you know. Um, and I've got a few other questions, but maybe – well, I've got a lot of other questions. Are, are you really okay with going over? I really am. Okay, because I am. Because I can catch up, you know, we have the internet. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, maybe you can get into that. Like, what what does life look like without a story? And and, and what does it look like when you re- – or is it possible to remove the stories of others? Would that be insulting, you know, when someone walks up and they, they want to be perceived a certain way? You know, you want it to be thought about in a certain way with your coat. And if someone walks up and talks to you as you – or is just a fellow person who is, is worthy of respect with no regard to a coat or anything else, you know, how do you think that would work? Is that a difficult thing to, to remove someone else's story? Or have you thought about that? Well, again, I don't, I don't think we can, we can't do without the stories, Yeah. but, but we can recognize, right. There's this, uh, there's this kind of gradual waking up, I think that gospel conversion involves this kind of gradual waking up to the fact that the stories I'm telling myself about myself, that they are stories, right? There's a, there's a kind of tendency, this kind of natural tendency to believe our stories in a way, right? To be invested in our stories in a way that doesn't recognize their status as stories that we're telling ourselves. But you can't get rid of the stories, but you can wake up to the fact that the stories are stories. And then that kind of that kind of liberates you in relationship to them. Right? Again, as with your hungers, you can't purge them and you can't right. succeed with respect to them either, right? You can't totally satisfy them and you can't purge them. But you can wake up to the reality of what they are, and then that liberates you to gives you kind of freedom in relationship to them to live your life. Uh, without that life constantly being judged and curtailed by the story, yeah, and I think that that's that ends up being true in our relationship to other people too. That once we start to wake up to the fact that our stories are, though they're important, they're just stories. We can wake up to the way we wake up to the way that other people's stories, though important, are also just stories, and then. Uh, the bandwidth upon which, you know, the the size of the bandwidth on mm-hmm. the on which we can connect to someone else expands dramatically. Right? Instead of only being able to relate to other people in terms of the narrow version of the story I'm telling myself about me and the narrow story that they're telling themselves about them, right? instead of only being able to relate to each other on that very narrow bandwidth, right, the the range of possible connections between people opens up to the span of life itself. Instead of just the very narrow range that occupied by our stories, but though when you do right, if you do when when you do relate to other people that way, I think this is a good it's a nice description of how Jesus related to other people. Right? Jesus didn't relate to other people on the basis of his story about himself. He didn't relate to other people on the basis of their stories about themselves. And sometimes people found it refreshing and liberating that somebody would relate to them that way. 
and sometimes they ran screaming into the night, <laughs> like, <laughs> like the Pharisees, right? That's because, true. Because right, that's that's charity. That that's the act of love, right? To bring yourself to bear in your vulnerability, in your vulnerability on the full range of what the other person is. Yeah. Um, that's charity, but that's also, and that can be that can be received reciprocally, reciprocally, or that can be absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and it's no reason to not try. Yeah, it's no reason to not try because the the other option is <laughs> much much worse, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, All that it, we're left with otherwise is a kind of feedback loop of mutually right. reinforcing narcissism. <laughs> yeah, Facebook. Facebook, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to talk about the relationship between the work we do and our value next. Um, or the way we go about trying to be saved by working or trying to win the love of God and others with our, with our, with the things we do with excellence, as you put it. Um, you wrote, as Mormons, we're often unclear about this. We emphasize the necessity of having faith in God's perfect love. And we hammer home the necessity of getting to work and pursuing excellence, like being good at what we're, we're, we're doing. Uh, we criticize others for neglecting either the need for faith or the need for work. All the while, laboring zealously in defense of these virtues, we tend to yoke them together, uh, the faith and the work, that is, in a way that hobbles them both. Uh, so how is work or the pursuit of excellence hobbled by being yoked to the love of God or our own sense of value? Like, like I have to – you talk about playing basketball, you know, trying to win approval by being really good at basketball. Um, maybe – to set this question up, you can read that that section on on basketball. Sure, you're gonna have me. You're gonna have me read the most embarrassing part of. The <laughs> I love it, man. That's it's a, it's about me. You know, that's why it, it resonates with me. <laughs> I was embarrassed right there with you. All right, then. As long as we're in it together. Uh, at your age, I say I was painfully competitive. I was determined to prove at school, on the court, at church, with girls, that I was better than other people, that I was more worthy of love and admiration. This ambition to prove my worth was a fountain of misery. If I excelled at something, it was never enough. If I failed, I shed fearful tears. I played basketball. Here I thought I'll gather a crowd and prove myself. I worked hard. I drilled. I shot endless free throws. I ran miles. I hit the weights. I started earlier and stayed longer. My sophomore year in high school, we won two of some 20 games. My junior year, we won four. Basketball season was an exercise in public humiliation. I cried. I got frustrated. I got angry. I worked harder. I started even earlier. I stayed even longer. My senior year, we won eight games. While our girls went to the state finals, I never managed the winning record. But I loved basketball. On the playground on a hot summer afternoon, I was loose and fearless and canonic. I would whoop and run and smile. The chain net sang when I sank a baseline jumper. The joy of pinning a shot to the backboard was, was ecstatic. On the playground, no one was watching. There was nothing to lose. But with my parents in the stands, with the school gathered on a winter night, I was a knot of inhibitions and short-armed free throws. The scoreboard would tip in the visitor's favor and my face would burn. The monkey on my back had his hands around my throat. On midwinter nights in that high school gym, my ambition was not to play basketball. 
my ambition was to use basketball as a crowbar for leveraging love. And this, win or lose, is no way to play basketball. And in fact, it's no way to do anything. Work chained to its outcome is misery. Yeah, that's good. That I I really that resonated with me. Um, you know, and I was thinking about chasing approval with work, and I wrote, "This is why the aspiring artist doesn't produce art. Uh, it's weights around the ankles during any good pursuit." And then places like Facebook tend to be places we chase approval and love. Look at my homemade doily or food I made, <laughs> the dog I trained, the children I dressed, my funny jokes, my profound thought I posted on a thoughtful faith and love me. Facebook is the marketplace of approval. And that, that's not all it is, but it's certainly part of it. And the approval is so fleeting and hollow. It props up our stories and keeps us distant from real life. Um yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm really glad that you wrote that, that you wrote about that, because that's so useful. Um, the last paragraph you wrote, life is not a movie. It has no audience and it reaches no climax. There's no soundtrack. There's just you and the work and the people who share the work with you. Love the work for its own sake. Perfect love casts out fear. Fearless in love, set ambition free. Do you have any... Any any more thoughts on that? Because that's that's really great. <laughs> I think I think this is the thing that's really easy to miss when we emphasize grace, right, and the importance of prioritizing grace. The thing that's really easy to miss is the way that rather than discounting work, prioritizing grace liberates work, right? It liberates us to be ambitious in our work because our, our happiness is no longer tied to the outcome of the work, right? To the degree that our happiness is tied to how a particular thing turns out, to whether or not a particular project produces the outcome we want, to the degree that our happiness is tied to that outcome and we treat the work itself as just a means to that end, then the work becomes, the work becomes miserable. Yeah. Uh, but the moment you cut the cord, right, and you, you, even though you may have goals, the moment you let yourself pursue the work and enjoy the work for its own sake, that liberates you to do the work uh, much more effectively than yeah. you would otherwise, right? It both, in, it both increases the quality of your work and it increases uh, the joy you're experiencing in the work regardless of how it turns out. Yeah. It's not a kind of recipe for uh, uh, apathetic quietism. It's a kind of recipe for liberating ambition from the shackles of trying to earn somebody else's love. Right. And I think this is how it's meant to work in the gospel. Right. We have to. We have to have faith. We're, we. It's required that we trust with all of our hearts in God's perfect love for us. But then we go about our work in the gospel as if the point of that work was to earn God's love because we didn't already have it. Yeah. That's ridiculous. We do have to go to work. We have to work much harder than we already do. But we will be empowered to work much harder than we already do if that work is no longer seen as a way of earning something that God's already already willing to give. Yeah. Yeah, because that's that's a that's a bad parent, one that. <laughs> I that will, is a bad parent, isn't it? Who wouldn't? Yeah. If your neighbor if your neighbor worked like that, 
You'd think he was a moron. Why would, you, <laughs> why would we think that God would work like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of that kind of brings me into the next thing that that I want to talk about a little bit. Um, you talk about faith in your book, and you kind of you define it a little bit different, I think, than I thought about it. Maybe a lot of other. Uh, people have thought about it, but in there you you have I guess it's a Zen maxim or something, and mm-hmm. you say to wake up to life requires three things: great faith, great doubt, and great effort. And that's you talking about like the freeing up, uh, freeing up ourselves to really be ambitious for for its own sake, for the work's sake. We're not worried about <clears throat> people loving us, and it's going to require this kind of work. That we're going to have to be able to do with all of our heart, but I want you to talk about, like, what is the great faith that you talk about, and also talk about um, saving doubt. So, yeah, define faith if you can, um, what you call faithfulness, uh, and then maybe talk a little bit about saving doubt. Well, I think as a practical matter, the heart of what it means to have faith and trust in God is to trust. The fact that life as it's given is a gift worth receiving. Right? So that's the, that, I think, is the heart of what it means as a practical matter to, to trust God, is to trust the gift of life that he's given. Mm-hmm. Trust him. Uh, uh, doubt, I think, so you need, you need great faith in that sense. You need great trust in life. Uh, and doubt here, I think, can play a crucial positive role in uh, our capacity to trust life insofar as doubt works as a kind of solvent that constantly calls into question the stories that we're telling ourselves about life in order to allow us to get back to trusting life instead of the stories that we're trying to tell about it. Yeah. So you're gonna have you're gonna have doubts no matter what, right? Is the thing. It's not as if you could walk through life as a human being without experiencing doubt. But the question, when doubts arise, the question again is what we do with them. The question has to do with our relationship to them. Doubts need to be repurposed for the sake of spiritual transformation. Right. Doubts in themselves aren't – to have doubt is neither good nor bad. It depends on what you do with them. If part of if part of the spiritual transformation that God's interested in, in having us undergo involves the kind of peeling away the layers of story that we're constantly using to protect ourselves from him, yeah. then I think doubt plays a crucial part in having those – those layers of of stories peeled away so that we're left open and vulnerable to him. Right. Yeah, and I think, <clears throat> I mean, doubt, <clears throat> it is, I thought about it, I, I wrote it as, uh, it's the only backdrop to which faith has any real meaning because there can't be any faith without some sort of doubt. But you're specifically focusing on, you say doubt is a, it's a solvent it has to be a doubt powerful enough, a powerful enough solvent to burn holes in our stories yeah. about God and about ourselves. And that's, 
That's that's tremendously useful. And this is something that I can look on my, back on my life and kind of see in action to where, you know, well, when you do this certain activity, you can't have the Holy Ghost after that, you know? Right. And then I, and this comes from a place of authority. So I'm like, okay, I accept that. And then I, I, in, in my, one of my worst moments, I do this activity or activities or whatever. And then again and again, I, I do feel the spirit afterwards when I come to God and like, oh man, I can't believe I did that. Boom, spirit, you know, and I, and I feel like, I feel this peace and it, like, well, it, and there's the doubt and I let it, I, I, I guess I kind of let it, uh, let it flow. And I, and I've determined that that's not true, <laughs> what I'd heard about where I can and can't. Uh, be in contact with God, you know, and that I'll let him define that. Is that kind of what you're talking about with a saving doubt? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, this is a really important point, right? The temptation is to think that when you get a hole burned by doubt in your story about yourself or about the story that you were telling yourself about you or the story you were telling yourself about God or the story you were, you've been telling yourself about religion, Right. When you get a hole burned in that story, the temptation is to think, well, that's it for religion, right? It's got a hole burned in it. Yeah. But I think that's exactly the wrong thing to do. I think the thing to do in that moment is to recognize that the burning of that hole in your story, that is religion, right? That is God at work. God is manifest in that hole having been burnt. Uh, it doesn't mean the whole thing's over. It means the whole thing is getting underway. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that, that it makes me think of uh, where in the scriptures it says, oh boy, I'm going to mess this up and sound really bad, but <laughs> Jesus is talking about how he comes with a sword. Yeah. And he comes to divide, and it's 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 a little bit of a, a violent way of talking. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where he says, I came not to... Right, that's that scriptural. That scripture sword is always two-edged too. Yeah, it always it always cuts both ways. Yeah, and and I've always missed that. I guess Mormonism has been presented to me in this very uh, by by people just like myself. I'll say, um, well-meaning and just you know ignorant as me. Uh, has been presented in this in this way where we don't talk about the scary parts because they're afraid of hurting me. Well, God's going to come in with a sledgehammer <laughs> or a sword. <laughs> He'll have both. Um, and just, he's going to really hurt me. And because it's what I need to grow and he's okay with that. Like it's time for me to get potty trained. <laughs> my, we're, we're trying to potty train my three-year-old. And, oh my gosh. Well, that's, that's cool. the kind of thing life is, right? That's the very, it's the very nature of life. Part Part of religion is, I think, palliative, right? Part of religion is, Helping people calm down and feel better and make it through the day. Part of religion is band-aids and morphine. But part, right, but that's just part. Part of, The other part of religion is God coming in with a scalpel to remove your heart and put in a different one. Yeah. Right? In order to do that, he's going to have to crack your chest open and yeah. cut the thing out. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's not going to be a lot of fun. No. But I guess if we're open to it and we're willing to nevertheless and not run from our doubt. And I think there's some value in, you know, if like, like say a member who, who just thinks their faith isn't quite strong enough to be able to encounter um, 
some of the controversies or things that they're they're going to experience because you can find that on your own you know i i i can i've sought it out before uh and there's people who kind of want to hide from that and i I don't blame them because so many people kind of get i guess they'd be described as being lost once they leave the church and they just throw religion out throw the baby out with the bathwater. but at the same time i never really think they're lost because they're still (laughs) they're still valuable people and just because they're not a Mormon and that's one of the things I love about about your book is that to me it's got such a big scope to it that it's not just a book about living life for Mormons it's really about anybody you know I can think of friends that are atheists I want to read this book you know because I think it'd be really helpful Um, well I think that's I think that's the test for anything authentically religious mm-hmm. is that something authentically religious has to be able to work crossways to the division between what's religious and not. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a little bit about what I want to go into next. Um, but to, to go back a little bit, do you think it's okay to counsel some people to kind of avoid certain controversies because they feel that they're not, strong enough and they don't want to lose their faith? I don't think we have to go out of our way to beat people over the head with Joseph Smith's clandestine introduction of polygamy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, for instance, I'm, I'm a gospel doctrine teacher in our ward here uh, in McKinney, but it's not the kind of thing I'll ever mention in <laughs> Sunday school, right? Because it's, it's just, it's not my place. Yeah. Not my place. People right. know about it. They do. If they don't, it's not my place to say. Right. I, we, have, we, have a, we have much more important things to worry about, which is whether or not we're strangling our own lives with our sinfulness. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's, that's the kind of thing that deserves our attention in Sunday school. That's the kind of thing that has a kind of existential bite to it. And I think a lot of the historical questions... I just don't see I just don't see getting exercised about them one way or the other. Yeah. That's good advice because I guess the risk of us strangling ourselves is much more real. You know, cuz you're going to do that whether you're a Mormon or not. <laughs> you know, if you're doing yeah. it. Uh whether Joseph Smith was a prophet or a fraud, you know, you're still going to Yeah, I can see why you say f- focus on the grace and try to try to get that under control. I do yeah, think I- I mean, if I'm if I'm bent if I'm bent on the church's history turning out to match my version of it in a certain kind of way, the problem there isn't that the church's history doesn't match up with my version of it. The problem is how invested I am in my version of everything, not just that. Yeah, yeah, not just church stuff either. Yeah, not just church stuff. Right, that's just a kind of particular example of of a general problem that I, as a human being, am suffering from. And and we have to be able to let go of that, right? Yeah, just not just for church, but for anything, to allow things to shift. Let them be what they are. Yeah. Without my demanding up front that they be a certain way. Yeah. Uh you talked about how <clears throat> how the church wanted to be well no, how life wanted to be lives, how how it wanted to be bigger than, than you were letting, how the world wanted to be bigger than you were letting it. And this kind of until finally you did let it. And this gets us into the the next thing. Or I'm, I'm trying to let it. 
Right. <laughs> right, me too. This is not an accomplished fact here. Uh, you talk about prophets who are flawed, and you write, uh, if, as the Bible makes clear, God can work through liars, thieves, adulterers, murderers, prostitutes, tax collectors, and beggars, he can certainly work around or even through Joseph Smith's clandestine practice of polygamy, Brigham Young's strong arms experiments in theocracy, or George Albert Smith's mental illness. You also talk about scientists who are flawed and whose theories may be flawed, but God speaks through them as well. So, I guess I want to hear hear you talk about your 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 view as of science as a kind of revelation from God. Can you give an example of that or Well, I think it's pretty clear, right, that science is a kind of ongoing rolling revelation about how things are. Now it's it's a kind of as all revelations, tentative, ongoing, rolling, self-correcting in some respects, which is the beautiful thing about science uh, revelation. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's clearly, it's clearly a revelation. And, you know, it's it may be a different, it may have a different kind of character uh, to it. It comes by comes by different kind of channels than uh, revel the kind of revelation that would come through President Monson or that came through Joseph Smith or Moses. Right? It has a different kind of character to it than those other kinds of revelations, but it is revealing the world around us to us. And it is bringing us into fuller and fuller contact with the broad spectrum of things that life involves. I think there's no denying that. And I think exhibit A is exhibit A is evolution. Yeah. Evolution in my in in my view evolution is one uh the, the fact, right, of biological evolution is one of the most astounding and crucial revelations given in the history of the world. Wow. Wow, that is cool. Um, in, in, in Darwin, as one of the revelators, as it were, stopped believing in God. So do you think that that impacts the truthfulness of the revelation, that he stopped believing in the source of it? Well, I don't know what I could say one way or the other about one way or the other about Darwin's own personal situation. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, but just I mean, I, I think I think we could I think we could say something like it appears to be the case that Darwin stopped believing in a certain version of the story that he'd been telling himself about God. Yeah. Well, but I don't know that I don't know that we could say more than that. Because I think that I think that. Most members of the church would be nervous about the idea of science as as a kind of revelation, just because, oh, well, this comes from atheists, uh, etc. And in Christianity, there's this this idea that to get a revelation requires this faith in God as the revelator, and that when your faith isn't strong enough, then you won't get whatever outcome it is that you're seeking, whether it's revelation or something like that. So that's the kind of argument I see, I would foresee coming from, you know, members of the church who who hear that science is a revelation. Well, I wouldn't say, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think I would want to say that that the revelation about uh, biological evolution came through Darwin. Mm-hmm. I think I would want to. I would much rather say something like, and I think this would be much more accurate. 
the revelation of biological evolution is the revelation that came through uh, rocks and fossils and trees and plants and animals and morphology and DNA and geology, uh, right? That's yeah. the source of the revelation. Darwin had a kind of uh, Darwin had kind of a role to play as a uh, as an initiator in uh, uh, giving voice. To, yeah. to, to letting those things speak, but it's the it's right. This is the Earth itself speaking to us. Right. Uh, this is not Darwin. This is why we can't brush it under the rug. If if it were Darwin, we could say the guy's a crank. Uh, he's the, he's an Englishman from the 19th century. Why should we care? But it's not Darwin, right? This is the Earth itself. This is the DNA in our own bodies, crying out to us about how the world is put together and how it works, and the weight of the world. Uh, that is behind this revelation I cannot be denied. No, <laughs> I I love how you how you you said uh, I've come to believe that. Now I'm paraphrasing again because I don't have it in front of me. But you said I've come to believe that that the scale of time or the time moves on a scale of billions rather than thousands of years old, and that space is unthinkably blind and deep, and that um, life on this earth came about by by a series of uh, you say. Blessed accidents, you know, and other things, and in, in that that uh, that's just something we have to we just have to live with. And that you talk about how we cannot afford to whitewash Brigham Young or Homo erectus anymore because it distances us from from God. It's just circling the wagons, a new way of sinning. <laughs> yeah, let let them be what they are, right? We don't have to make them – we don't have to force them to fit our stories about how we would like things to have been. Let them be what they are. Yeah, and I, th- I think like you can drink from the Nile without necessarily believing in the source of it. It doesn't make the water any less wet. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that, that you, you talk about rocks um, and other things as kind of the oracles of Revelation and Darwin as well. And Joseph Smith, you could look at him like that too. That you know, because some people look at him like he's a complete charlatan, um, and it it almost doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Do you do you see where I'm getting at with that? Like it feels like it doesn't matter in your perspective that there's this this that he's an oracle. You know, what do you think about that? Am I am I totally crazy in saying that? The he being well. That Joseph Smith, Darwin, um, geology, rocks, fossils, that they're all kind of part of this revelatory system and that God that, – that it's – who cares if the rock was dirty? <laughs> we can look at it and find layers that teach us about things that God wanted to show to us. Well, the world, the, the world is giving itself. Yeah. Right? The world is giving itself and part of how it gives itself is what it shows of itself to us. And you know, part of what is part of what is going to show to us is the fact that it's a little bit dirty. Yeah. Right. That's that's part of what that's part of how things are. That's part of what the truth is. That's part of what gets revealed. Right. When Jesus says, "In the last days, when everything is revealed, that your secrets will be shouted from the rooftops." Well, that's. That's part of the revelation of all things, though I imagine yeah. some of those things won't be won't be particularly pleasant. <laughs> well, the right? internet, the internet's already, you know, boy. Because I thought about it the other day, like as soon as someone messes up, boom, 
it's out there. It's on YouTube. Right, and that's true for this is true for Joseph Smith. It's for you and I, right? Joseph Smith. Uh, his secrets will be shouted from the rooftops, too. And that that moment when we when we confess the fullness and breadth of life as as it is. That's the moment I think when we come closest to God, not when things just match up with the prefabricated, pretty picture that we had of how things ought to have been. Yeah, or does it match our story or our shadow? As you you refer to stories as shadows, and like we don't, we are not our shadow, um, and the world is not its shadow. <laughs> yeah, we want Joseph. We want in lots of we want Joseph Smith to be his shadow, to be this flat, black, ideal, seamless thing but it turns out he's a human being and part of what he was revealing from god is what it means to be a human being and how it is that god works uh despite ourselves lots of times through us yeah that's the good news of the gospel the good news of the gospel is that god can and will and does work with people just like you and i who are a mess yeah in fact that's something that that you know, as I read, as I've read more history about Joseph Smith and others, it's actually it's been alarming because I wasn't prepared for it, but it's also been kind of comforting because it's the, it's the good news. Yeah, like if he can do it through that guy, well, maybe I have a shot. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, that maybe made Joseph Smith sound really particularly bad, but I don't, I don't believe that. If, um, if Joseph Smith was, if Joseph Smith was quasi angelic, what good does it do me that God yeah. spoke to him? Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. God comes to a fourteen-year-old boy uh, in a grove of trees who has all the problems that a fourteen-year-old boy will. Yeah. Now that that has some traction. That's a God I can I can respect. <laughs> that's a God. That's a God who might come to me. You might yeah. come knocking on my door. Yeah. So <clears throat> we're kind of at the end here. I have one more thing I want to get at. Um. So let me let me think of how to phrase this. Um. You talk about how Mormonism is a way of living rather than dodging life, and and that we need to be awake to life and receiving what's what's given to us and i i want to know what it looks like when mormonism as a culture and religion is living like this and i kind of want to contextualize this question by saying that like the things you write about seem radical your ideas are very different they're they're useful and they're amazing but they're 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 not what mormons think um and you know, you didn't conceive these ideas in a vacuum. You talk about reading from that, that list of books that we talked about earlier, <laughs> you know, and all of your learning and how you pull elements of what I would say Buddhism and other things, and you're, you're finding God in these things. It's big. It's much bigger than the, the little kind of prepackaged religion that was handed to me. And it's proving to be true. Uh, and it includes our scriptures. And, you know, you talk about Tolstoy and Homer and all those other guys. Um and I feel like your perspective of of how Mormonism – that your perspective is how Mormonism could look, not maybe the only way it could look, but one of the ways it could look if it were unfettered. And I think that what Joseph Smith started was a work of great exploration and creativity. And I think we've kind of lost a little bit the vision. I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm criticizing the whole church. I am criticizing myself. I'm now just coming out of this. But as I look around, I see a lot of people who are just like me, and they kind of use the church as a security blanket. And we turn inward, 
And uh, you know, I think about something F. Scott Fitzgerald said where <clears throat> it's in um, it's in Bernice Bob's her hair, I think. But he says when you're 18, your your convictions are the hills from which you look, and when you're 45, they're the caves in which you hide. And I feel like Joseph Smith was. You know, he, he was always turning something he learned on its head and changing it. And like, well, that was the revelation yesterday. Today, it's this. And he seemed to be really – have very little regret about that. And here we are. You know, he dies and we cling very closely to the last thing he taught, kind of maybe failing to, to realize that had he lived another five minutes, he might have turned that on its head. And he was so flexible and we have become so rigid. So I guess I want to know – in context of that, and maybe you don't agree with that, and we can talk about that too. But if you do, in context of that, what what does what would maybe Mormonism in our culture look like if we were living in a way that was not dodging life and awake, as it were, as you're to, to be awake to life? Well, let me let me try a couple of things here. Okay, <laughs> that's kind of a big thing I gave you. <laughs> First. Uh... I don't know if what if what if what Mormonism needs is my version of things. <laughs> heaven, heaven, help us all. <laughs> right. So that's first of all. Okay. <laughs> that's number one. <laughs> number. I'm, I'm very serious about that too. Right? Okay. Right, which is why, which is why the title of Rube Goldberg Machines is Rube Goldberg Machines. Right. Right, because that uh, I don't know if people may or may not be familiar with a Rube, with what a Rube Goldberg machine is, right? But Rube Goldberg machines are these uh, elaborate contraptions, very complicated contraptions meant to perform very simple actions, right? And I think that's not a bad metaphor for what philosophy and theology in general are like, right? There are these very elaborate conceptual contraptions for doing something that in itself is probably actually pretty straightforward and yeah. simple. Uh, so if what the church needs is my my ad hoc my ad ad hoc Rube Goldberg machines, good heaven help us. Uh, well, yeah, and you talk about the comedy, like a good theolo- a good theologian has a sense of comedy. You say the comic aspect of the arrows we wing at cloudy skies must be kept firmly in mind. Yeah, and we we should keep that firmly in mind. So I don't. Uh, mean- <laughs> the second, but you know, people get it's easy to get carried away, especially it's easy to get carried away about yourself, right? You yeah. think, oh, I've got it. I'm the I'm the thing that people need. The one true Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> That's right. I've got the one true Rube Goldberg machine, <laughs> and that's just uh, it's just sad. Ridiculous. The second thing, I, the second thing I want to say uh, is that you know I'm in my writing. I'm always aiming for two things at the same time. I'm always aiming number one to only say the same things that we always say, but number two, I'm also always aiming to never say them in the way that we usually say them. Okay. So I mean, I mean at at once to be both original, but for that originality to always only ever be in the service of a kind of fidelity to the things that we're always already saying. Yeah. So I mean, I think what I would what I what I would like best for someone reading my work would be to to read a passage and think to themselves. I have thought this my I have been thinking this very thing my entire life. Uh, I've been taught this very thing my entire life at church, 
but I hadn't realized that I'd been taught it. Yeah. Something like, right? I went there. I went there to be that moment of of recognition, where because I tweaked the angle a little bit on how I was talking about it, they saw something that they already had. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the way I think about my theology in relationship to what we do, for instance, in Sunday school at church. I think we're saying the right kinds of things at church. Like we're doing the right kinds of things, even if it's hard sometimes to recognize them for what they are. Right? Yeah. And maybe that's because, like I said, that this is really a criticism of myself because I am my own little church in my own little head, you know? Yeah. And when I have described certain gospel aspects to people in the past, I've been very rigid. You know, and no, you must do this. The toe must go under all the way. <laughs> it doesn't count. You must be facing east. You must. Well, that's must... true, of course. Yeah. So the toe does have to go under. <laughs> that's right. And the lid must be off the oil. And I kind of created this rule book. And it gives me comfort because it helps me feel like I'm – I think it's kind of a sense of control. Um, and that's why I say I want to be careful about talking about this because I don't want to make it sound like we're 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 way off base. But I think that – that we do limit ourselves, you know, in, in what we're allowed to think. We, we, um, I don't want to use the word correlate, but I definitely correlate other people to myself. Yeah. Saying, well, you know what? I'm sorry, but your view isn't right. So here's the real, the one true Rube Goldberg machine from David Nicolay, right. you know. And I wonder what the church would look like in our culture. Now, I'm, not, I'm not blaming anyone in, in charge because I'm, I'm part of it. And that's why I say the culture. We're all part of this tapestry. And I just wonder how it would be different if we didn't have those fears that I'm talking about, like the kind that I had, that, that caused me to circle the wagons in relation to doctrine. You know what I mean? Like if we were more free. That's what I'm getting at. And that's why I say, like, your, your work, it seems free to me. You know, and it's it's one of many ways that Mormonism could look. And you say it already does look that way, but I didn't see it because of the way I thought about it, I guess. It was never portrayed to me like that. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think there's – I think the thing is, you know, as, as we start to get a feel for the way that our stories about things are stories, yeah. right, then, then we have a kind of freedom in relationship to the stories. Because we recognize that everything doesn't depend on the story, right? Everything depends on life, and life is not the story, and life is not subject to the life is not subject. Life is not fragile in the same kind of way our stories are. We can trust life in a way that we can't trust our stories. Hmm. And once we see that our stories are just stories, right? Something that is generated inevitably as a useful but secondary byproduct of life. Then we there's a kind of freedom in relationship to how we use those stories in our lives for our lives rather than forcing our life to work in the service of the story. Yeah. Right? If we're always trying to force our lives to work in the service of the story that we're trying to tell, then we'll always be afraid the story is about to fall apart because it is about to fall apart. <laughs> right. And it will, it will fall apart tomorrow or it will fall apart five years from now, but it will fall apart. The story will not work. Your story is not big enough for the world, right? Even yeah. your version of God's story is is not big enough for life, and it's no your version of God's story is nowhere big enough for God. Yeah, right? God is too big for that for that little teeny story you have. 
Yeah. And if we're all right, if we're always trying to force life in to fit that story, then we'll always be afraid. We'll have to be we'll have to be super rigid at maintaining the boundaries of the story itself. But if we mm-hmm. recognize the story as as a part of life and something that's for the sake of life, then we have a kind of freedom with it. Uh, and that fear can go away because we're not – our faith isn't invested in the story anymore, right? Our, our faith is invested in life, and part of that life is the story, uh, but life has a kind of robustness to it uh, that isn't always threatening to fly apart in the way that our stories are. And we can trust it, and we can trust God's manifestation in it. Awesome. That's a really good answer. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh you know, that's all I have. Do um, you have anything you want to add? You have uh, done an excellent job. Really, <laughs> really, I'm serious. Excellent questions. And it's, I mean, the nicest thing about it, I think, has been it didn't, it, you know, it felt like we were having a conversation. That's what I wanted. Kind of, <laughs> not a kind of one-sided interview. I was really I worried it would suck. And I knew if it did, it'd be my fault. <laughs> no, I think I think I really enjoyed it. You've done a great job. Thanks. Yeah, and I just want to say again that um, uh, oh, one last thing. When your book is published, Letters to a Young Mormon, could you let me know or let someone know at a thoughtful faith, and we can get it posted on the website or on Facebook or something like that? Because there's going to be a lot of people that want it, especially because I'm going to force a lot of people to to have it to buy it. <laughs> so, yeah, so let's let's say um, Rube Goldberg Machines Essays in Mormon Theology is available right now on Amazon. Good, yes. Uh, uh, but Letters to a Young Mormon uh, is just right now making its rounds amongst publishers looking for a home. And I will let you and my grandmother and everyone else on the planet know <laughs> when, it, when it finally becomes available. Good. And yeah, Rube Goldberg Machines is awesome, listeners. So pick it up if you can. Go to the library. Do whatever you have to do. But it's it's really good to think new and different thoughts every now and then and well, you know, we're thinking what we've always thought, but just in a different way. Um, that's everything. I just want to thank you again for being willing to sit with me for, you know, it's been a while now, <laughs> over two hours. Um, yeah. And miss a woman praying in conference. <laughs> Surely they'll save her for later. You don't think it was the very first prayer, do you? Maybe well, Sunday I, I, morning. I read somewhere that it was and that there was another one that was maybe going to be the last session on Sunday. But I'll... You know, I get more out of conference than just that, just so you know. <laughs> well, I was looking forward to that myself. Well, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, David. All right. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com.
See you.